Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 34. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What is the law of the Lord? And then follows the ten words of the covenant. As we heard it this morning and as we hear every Sunday morning, and then question and answer 93, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. After the sermon, we will sing together from Psalm 105, the stanzas 14 and 15. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, what are the kinds of things that excite you in life? What about you children? What are the kinds of things that you really, really like? There are a lot of things, aren't there? You can get excited about hockey and football, for example, and about your favorite singing artist, perhaps, or about certain toys, But what about the law of God? Does the law of God excite you? I doubt it. And I don't think it is on the top of the list for adults either. Yet as you read through the scriptures, such as a large Psalm 119, then you read there that the author time and again says how he delights in the law of God. The whole Psalm 119 is a love song about the law of God. For example, he says in verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And in verse 35, direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. And in verse 47, for I delight in your commands because I love them. And in verse 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And in verse 129, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. And so the author goes on and on about the delight concerning the law. Why is he so delighted? That is what I will preach to you about this afternoon. I will preach to you about the delight of God's law. And we will see that that delight is shown, first of all, through God's word, and secondly, through God's love. What is it about the law that makes it so delightful, and yet at the same time, that it makes that delight so elusive? 
Well, let's look at what the scriptures say about the law of God. The first thing we should note is that the scriptures usually do not refer to the law as the law or as the Ten Commandments. For example, in the introduction to the law as it is given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we don't actually even read the word law as such. No, it speaks about these words. God spoke all these words, saying, and then follow the ten words of the covenant. Throughout Exodus and throughout the rest of Scripture, they are known as the ten words of the covenant. First, and let's look at that word, words. You may say, what really is the difference between the law or the words of God? Don't they all amount to the same thing? Yes, but it isn't that all that simple. The command or the law brings to mind a decree. It brings to mind something that we must do. It is something that restricts us. The law crimps our style. For that reason, we do not naturally think about the law as being a delight. We don't like to be told what to do. And that is the way it has been ever since Adam and Eve. They wanted to do their own thing. That is what we are like. But we have to pay close attention to what it means when he speaks, when he uses words. When God speaks, he makes something happen. For example, at the time of creation, he spoke words. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And when God said, let the land produce vegetation, also that happened. God spoke and life was created on this earth. As the author to the Hebrews says in chapter 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the world was created, and here it comes, by the word of God. And as it says in Psalm 33 verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. When God speaks, wonderful things happen. When he speaks, it is not just a cry into empty space. His words are not like the words of man, which often contain little or no meaning, and which have little or no effect. He is not like a modern-day politician who will say just about anything in order to get elected. God's words are trustworthy. They are not just meaningless sounds, self-serving sounds. His words are also his deeds. His speaking always brings forth results. His words also always have their basis in indisputable fact. In Isaiah 55, verse 11 and following, the Lord compares his word to the rain and the snow from heaven. He says there that the rain waters the earth and makes it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. And then God says something really profound. So is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I, will, what I desire, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 
In other words, he is telling us that when he sends forth his word, life is created. God's word creates and brings forth fruit. And so when we speak about the words that God spoke at Mount Sinai, then we are speaking about something very significant. For you see, God's word is not just a book. God's word is is not full of a bunch of dead rules and regulation. No, God's word creates life. And it is extremely powerful. The introduction to the law shows how significant that word is. For he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He uses the present tense. He doesn't say, I will be your God if you keep these commandments. No, he says, I am your God, period. It's a fact. We don't have to do something first so that God will accept us as his children. No, he speaks and we are his children. Can you imagine if that were not the case? Can you imagine if that's how we treated our children, if we would say to our children, you can be my child as long as you keep all the rules of the household first. And then if you keep all those rules, then I will be kind to you and accept you as my child. If not, I want nothing to do with you. We don't treat our children that way, do we? For we know that our children will break the rules. Yet, in spite of that, we love them. In spite of that, we accept them as our children. Why then do we put the rules in place? Well, because we love our children and we want to protect them. We want to keep them from harm. To teach them that if they do whatever they want to do, that that then will be to their destruction. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that is also why the Lord God gave us the ten words of the covenant, the law. They are words of life. They are not there in order to establish the relationship, but in order to confirm the relationship. They are put there out of the bond that already exists, the bond of love. And now you can see why the author of Psalm 119 can sing such lofty praises to the law of God. He realizes what the function of the law is. He realizes that if you do not keep those laws, that then you do harm to yourself. If you do not want to listen to the Lord your God, then God will not be with you and you will perish. You can read about that also in Psalm 105. We see how the Lord God treated those who wanted nothing to do with God's word, with the Egyptians. As it says in verse 31, He he spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout the country. And in verse 34, He spoke and the locusts came, grasshoppers without number. They ate up every green thing in their land and ate up the produce of their soil. And so you see, when God speaks, things happen. When evil things happen, then they are a warning of the great destruction that is to come on all those who do not heed his voice. 
But God spoke in order to make all that happen. He speaks against Egypt. But he speaks in favor of his people Israel. He spoke and the conditions were created so that he could be freed from the Egyptians and that he could be freed from slavery and that he could serve the Lord God in freedom. God's words are the words of life, but only for those who through faith belong to him. And for that reason, the Ten Commandments are referred to not just as words, but as words of the covenant. Time and again in Exodus and throughout the scripture, you will hear that phrase being used, the words of the covenant. The wording of the Ten Commandments also alerts us to that fact, for in the law the word Lord is repeatedly used. Capital letters are used. And when that is done in our translations, then we know that God's covenant name is being used. In Hebrew, the word Yahweh. For example, the second commandment says, For I, the Lord your God, Yahweh, am a jealous God. In the third commandment, it says that you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord, again Yahweh, will not hold you guiltless. In the fourth commandment, it says that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, Yahweh, your God. In the fifth commandment, it says that you must honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And again, his covenant name is used, Yahweh. The Israelites in the wilderness knew exactly what that name meant. For just prior to the giving of the ten words of the covenant, God introduced himself by that name. He introduced himself like that to Moses when he came to him in the burning bush. Moses said to God in Exodus 3 verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then we read further. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Yahweh, it is the living God. It is the God who is and who was and who always will be. He introduces himself as the living God, the true God, the God who has always been there for his people and who will always be there for his people. That is his great covenant love. We come to the second point. He shows his great love, especially in the way that he introduces himself in the introduction to the law. He says that he is the Lord God who rescued them from Egypt. He delivered them. That was a great event in the history of God's people. But do you know why that was such a great event? It is not because he delivered them from slavery as such, but that he delivered them from the grip of Satan. Satan had taken hold of his people and they needed to be rescued from him. And that is something they cannot do on their own. They are totally incapable. 
that's also what we confess in Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There the question is asked, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? And the answer is yes. And now the Lord God rescues us from the inability to keep the law. He delivered us from our impotence, from our great weakness. And do you know how he does that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Well, he showed that already in a wonderful way to his Old Testament people. In his great love, he not only brought them into a delightful relationship with him through the law, through the law that he established, but also he indicated that he is the one who maintains that relationship. How? By keeping the law for them. And that is beautifully illustrated by the two tablets of the law. For as you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, then he had the two tables of the law with him. God himself had written his law on those two tablets. We can read about that in Exodus 32, verse 15. It says there that Moses went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony, or covenant, in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, it says there, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on those tablets. Many people think that on the first tablet, God wrote the first four commandments, dealing with man's relationship with God. And that the second tablet contained the last six commandments concerning our relationship with our neighbor. And I thought for a long time as well that that is the way it was. However, it is highly unlikely that that was the case. According to scholars, it is much more likely that the one tablet was an exact duplicate of the other. For that is how, in those days, treaties between two parties were enacted. The one copy was meant for the one party, and the other one for the other party of the treaty. In this way, each party of the agreement, or if you will, the covenant, would have in his own possession the exact wording to which they had agreed. Actually, that's also how we enter into a contract, isn't it? When you make an agreement, for example, with a bank, then you get an exact copy of what was agreed to. You sign it, and so does the representative of the bank. You have a copy of the agreement, but the bank has a copy as well. In this way, you can consult the agreement any time you want. Well, that is also the way it was with the covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai. God gave Moses two copies of that law. One of the copies was for the Lord God, and the other one was for his people. But where did Moses have to deposit those two tablets of the law? Do you know, children of the congregation? I'm sure you do. Both those tablets had to go into a specially made box, which was called the Ark of the Covenant. God commanded Moses to put both sides, or to both those tablets, in that Ark of the Covenant. And you know where that Ark of the Covenant was kept, don't you? 
It was kept in the most important room of the temple in the Holy of Holies. And the ark had a beautiful lid on it. And that lid was also known as the throne of God. The high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And no doubt the ark was also, the law was also copied by Moses and therefore they were deposited, before they were deposited in the ark. For the people also had to know the Ten Commandments. But the originals, they were placed under the throne of God in the most holy sanctuary. What do you think the meaning is of this? Well, very simple. God himself would keep the promises and the demands of the covenant. He represented both parties. He would keep the law for them. He would fulfill the obligations of both parties of the covenant. For he reveals himself as the God of Israel. And he alone is capable of keeping the law. He alone has the strength and the love to do what man cannot do. But note well that once a year the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and take the blood of the sacrificed animal and sprinkle it on the cover of the ark, on the throne of God. Do you know why that was done? That was done to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he would shed his blood on Golgotha. Because man himself is incapable of keeping God's law. He deserved to die. And that is what the, the blood pointed to. But the Lord Jesus took that upon himself. God took that upon himself. And that is how much he loves us. His son died for us. And in this way, he kept the law for us. And now you can also know why the author of Psalm 119 can say in verse 45, I will walk about in freedom. He realizes that his relationship with God is not established or maintained through his own obedience in the first place. No, the Lord God has rescued him from the law. He has rescued him from evil. And that gives you a tremendous sense of freedom, doesn't it? For then you know that it is not up to you to establish or maintain the relationship, for it is not based on you keeping the law. God does it all for you. Please understand, however, that that does not mean that you do not have to keep the law. Of course you do. But only out of thankfulness. It is only because God has made you one with him, because he has put you into a wonderful relationship with him. And because of that, you must also want to be like him. You must want to be holy. You must want to keep the rules, even though you can't. But in the meantime, we have to remember that the law, the rules, that they are only there because of the relationship that already exists. Because he loves you. For the purpose of the law is to keep you safe. The purpose of the law is to keep you close to God. The purpose of the law is to make you thankful for what the Lord Jesus has done for you on the cross. He has rescued you from the evil one and from evil itself. 
That is why these words of the introduction to the Ten Words of the Covenant are so significant. And that is why we also read those introductory words every Sunday morning as we recite the Ten Words of the Covenant. For they are just as important for us as they were for the Israelites way back when. Every Sunday we hear the same introduction that they heard in the wilderness, namely that God has rescued them, that he has rescued his people out of Egypt. Have you ever wondered what that has to do with us? We've never been to Egypt. We have never known any Pharaoh. Yet God says to you and to me, I delivered you out of Egypt. But do you know what that means? That means that the Lord God also rescues you and me, not just from the power of the Satan of Egypt, but from the power of the Satan of this whole world. For Satan also has you and me in his grip. If it weren't for the fact that God has rescued us through his son Jesus Christ, then we too, along with the rest of the world, would stand condemned, just as the Egyptians were. God spoke. And it happened. God spoke at the time of your baptism. And you were confirmed as a child of God. God's word now continues to open up the way to him to eternal salvation. God speaks and your sins are forgiven. God speaks and you are made clean. God speaks and he gives you everything you need for body and soul. That is the great power of God's word. And that is also what he wanted the Israelites to know, so that they could be thankful and keep the ten words of the covenant out of thankfulness. After their wanderings in the desert, the Lord God allowed them to enter the land of Canaan. He gave to his people all the riches of the land, including everything that others had toiled for, as he also says in Psalm 105. But why did the Lord give them these things? Well, he gave them to them, as it says in verse 45 of Psalm 105, that they might keep his precepts and obey his laws. For his laws are good and wise. The Lord God gives man enough so that he can enjoy everything that he has here on earth, but he has to acknowledge God as the giver of any of everything, even as the giver of your and my obedience. A Christian, a believer, lives a life of thankfulness. He knows how richly he has been blessed. He knows what a wonderful father he has. And for that reason, he wants to serve him and obey him and to trust him. His delight is in doing his will. God speaks to us, as he has done once again this afternoon. And his words, beloved, are the words of life. Hang on to those words for dear life. Amen.